Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And I am also a host, Dax. <laughs> <laughs> and on each episode, we tell a story about video game history and culture. But before we do that, what have you been up to, man? How are you doing? Dude, I've been trying to not melt because it's hot and I'm dying. And I have managed to not die. <laughs> Just to record this episode, and after we've done, I'm gonna perish. So that's what that was mean. What's up? I want you? you to know that I have been secretly making little jokes about you to Andrea because of the heat, and I will explain. <laughs> okay, I said to you about how I would die if I didn't have air conditioning, and I didn't understand how people don't have air conditioning, and you said. I just like to feel the weather. And now every time it is like miserably hot, Andrew and I will look at each other and go, I just like to feel the weather. I just like to feel it. Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like a real experience. Uh, the European experience of experiencing the weather. You cannot fake this. Hey, you, you know what? Your American scumbag can't even ex experience <laughs> anything with your real skin on the real weather, sunshine on your skin. You know, just we have ceiling fans in every room of the house, but let's just not turn them on. Let's just let's just feel the weather. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh, I, I'm sorry, you're melting. <laughs> um. Well, <clears throat> I would ask you what you've been playing, but I already know that you have been playing Cult of the Lamb, and I have yeah, as I well. It's so fucking good. <laughs> like, it's so good. What do you think about it so far? Uh, it's a really cool game. I love it. It's a really fun game. It's a Devolver Digital game, and they just publish really good games in general. Like, it's one of those publishers you can just know that if you buy a game of them, it's going to be good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it was made by um, what Massive Monster Games. I think was yeah, the just, company. Devolver just published it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I own something by them. I think it's called um. Let me look here. It's called uh, Adventure Pals, and it's like a goofy co-op game about a boy, and he has like a giraffe coming out of his backpack. I was gonna play it with Andrea, but we never got around to it. Um, but uh. Yeah, really interesting to those who don't know. So it just came out like a couple of days ago at the time of recording this episode. And it's a game about um, creating your own cult of cutesy anthropomorphic animals and then um, using them for things that allow you to fight your enemies. And you can ritualistically sacrifice them if you'd like. Um, and they're usually me, really into it. Do you remember Happy Tree Friends? Yes, I it do. It gives and me Happy Tree Friends vibe. vibes. It's not the same but it gives me vibes of that um, because it's cute animals doing cool things. Um, it's less, it's less gore for gore's sake, like Happy yeah. Tree Friends was, but it is definitely that aesthetic. Yeah, it's about it's about as sinister. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and it and really I, and, pushes you to like murder them. Like it really you wants you. You have to sacrifice them. all of the cultists and you have to marry. Like I, 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 like there's different things you can do to them and you can do all the shit that you know of those weird 70s, 60s cults in America. <laughs> like that they, like these cult leaders that marry all of their cultists and shit like that. Mm -hmm. And you can make them commit suicide and stuff like that. And I, I married five of my cultists because that's what I had to do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's what any cult leader would do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a sensible thing to do. 
Um, it's a fun game. Check it out, guys. Um, yeah, <laughs> to give you an example of a kind of a quest that a um, that one of your followers can give you. Uh, so good. if you're if you're playing on Twitch, you can have uh, your like your individual cultists can be like people in your chat, and so uh, there's like a little overlay you can get, and they can design their own cultist. And so our friend Picaro, <clears throat> she decided to design her own cultist, and one of the first things she asked me to do was this. I will read to you, benevolent leader, please don't judge me, but I've always wanted to eat a meal made of poop. Will you help me to satisfy this dark desire? You bet and, I did. And, and, and if you give it to them, they will be surprised that you actually did it. That you actually <laughs> oh, yeah. did it? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I knew it was so good for me to put my faith in you. And if you say no, then they cause dissent. And they're like, this cult fucking sucks. They won't let me eat bowls of shit. <laughs> what kind of cult is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, good thing. Yeah, super into it. Um, so if one would like to contact us, how would they do that? Just well, changing the topic here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Away from shit eating. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to email us, uh, you can email us at codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at codexrexpodcast. And you can find me on Twitch. I am Vegan Tyler on Twitch. Yeah, and just join the Discord, hang out with us. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're there all the time. We're there all the time. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to, um, I'm getting ready to move across the country again. And, um, I'm about to start like a new job. And I think my streaming is probably going to be a lot less than it used to be for a, a few months. And so, um, the discord is the best place to hang out with us. If you, um, if you want to come say hi. Yeah. Okay. Should we get into this? Let's do this. Show me what you got. Okay, <clears throat> so before I start, uh, so this is actually a story about a bunch of different people, and um, it's about a lot of things at first that might seem kind of unrelated, like you might be like, why on earth are you telling me about like all the sports this guy used to do or whatever, but I think there's an interesting story here, so just kind of follow me for a while. We're going to talk a lot about caves, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Okay. Okay. <clears throat> William Crowther was born in 1936. He grew up in eastern New York and was a really active kind of guy throughout his younger years. He was into skiing for a while, but then some people from MIT that he was friends with um, told him that they were into doing some rock climbing. So he started doing rock climbing with them as well. And it seemed from like from what I read, um, he was just like this active kind of guy pretty much if there was something to do outside like he wanted to do it and he got his bachelor's in physics in 1958 and while he was there he met up with some people and started exploring caves and while he was caving he, he's in this group of people and he meets a woman named patricia or pat who was also a computer programmer who also studied physics and really loved caving I bet you can see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. The two of them, they start dating. They eventually marry. I mean, they both die in a cave. Oh, no, they, they, they marry. Okay. I, I was going to like, they both die. And this is the end of the story. Because caving is really dangerous. Don't go caving, guys. This is really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Long ago, William and Patricia get married. I know that they were both doing programming work for a while, though. I couldn't find like exactly what they were doing in the early years. But in the early 1970s, William Crowther was working a job at a place called Bolt, Baranac, and Newman, or BBN. Mostly what they did there was defense contractor work and a bunch of R&D type stuff. And what he's famous for is working on something called ARPANET. A-R-P-A-N-E-T, ARPANET. I will explain. The United States government had an agency called the Advanced Research Projects Agency, i.e. ARPA. Now, um, today you might know of it as the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. If you've ever played Metal Gear Solid, you might have heard of DARPA. But DARPA. So this is a bit of a summary here. But essentially, they put together a project in 1966 that would allow people to remotely access computers in a different location. It's an early attempt at the internet, right? Yeah, you know it's up. I remember the name. Yeah, yep. because it, this, this was developed by the military because the problem is that if one of your locations get destroyed in a war um, scenario, um, you lose the information that is stored there. So you need to decentralize your information flow. And that is why something like the internet has military value or concepts similar to the internet, like ARPANET was. You got it. Um, yeah, yeah. So first off, the military applications, obviously. And then research applications were... I read some stories about how they were running into issues where like researchers would come to them and say, we have this great research project we want to do. And it's really, really important. And... Um, we need you to give us an absolutely gigantic and very expensive computer. And they'd be like, hey, um, that's not in the budget right now. So if you could just, why don't you just drive like a couple of states away and just like go use the one that's there? And they're like, well, I can't do that. What, what about my, you know, what about my work? What about all these things? And so they had this idea, right? Like what if you could access a bigger computer with your smaller computer? And that was the original impetus of it, right? Like that you could just sort of log into someone else's computer from far away. But to do that, as Docs has already mentioned, you would have to establish a network. And they decided to award the contract to build this network of computers to the company that Crowther was working at. And they would call it the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network or ARPANET. And Crowther was on the small team that helped build it. And um, his job was to create data transfer routines. And um, Docs has already said this, he's right, but ARPANET is what would become the first foundation of the internet. And so um, I think that's really cool, right? So here's this guy, I was just randomly researching him for the story I was doing, and it's like, oh, he helped build the internet. How neat is that? Yeah. There's conflicting information about this because there's also the approach that um, a Swiss research institute did at about the same time. But that usually happens that when we have these big research leaps, that they happen at several places at the same time. Because mm -hmm. the need for something, for certain research leaps, often arises at the same time. Which is why, for example, the telephone was developed at, by completely independent people at the same time. Because instant mm -hmm. um, remote conversation capabilities were necessary during that time. And so Many, right. many people thought about how to do that. So it doesn't really yeah. matter. ARPANET was one of the first approaches at doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's a solid point as well. Okay, so anyway, uh, William and, and, and Pat, like I said, 
<clears throat> they're very into exploring and surveying caves. And they kept this up throughout their careers. Supposedly, Pat was known in the Kentucky caving world as being really good at exploring caves at the time. She weighed 115 pounds, had a very slight frame, and could make it through places that other people couldn't. She and William went on a lot of explorations trying to map and connect caves in the region. And if you don't know anything about Kentucky, they actually have the longest cave system in the entire world. And that's that's where they were doing most of their stuff. So I guess that this whole caving thing that they did started out with the two of them and then a few of their friends. And they got this agreement with the Park Service and they started actually mapping out the caves. And William described himself as the cartographer for the group. And so he would go in and he would map out all these caves on paper and he had these little like journals and he would bring these like muddy little journals back to his house and they had a teleprinter and it was connected to a PDP-1 back at his job, which he was allowed to access when it wasn't being used for other things. So the two of them developed a program that would take their work put it onto punch tape that would get fed into another computer, and then they could create digital maps of the caves. And these printed maps could then be given to other people who were going through the caves on return trips so they wouldn't get lost. And so this was like super high tech at the time and apparently are some of the earliest computer drawn maps of caves. Can I just mention that if anyone imagines yeah. what caving is, caving is not walking into caves. Caving is finding a very small crack in the ground and being like, hmm, maybe there's a cave down there. And then you squeeze in because you, mm -hmm. for some reason, don't think about that you might not get out of that. And you squeeze in and then you find out, oh, this is going really deep. But it, all of the time, it's really, really tight. So I just have to keep squeezing. And if my blood pressure gets too high, I get stuck and will die. So I just have to stay really calm while being stuck between tons and tons of rock so what these people did sounds kind of insane and i'm a bit frightened of them it does <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> um, i would never go caving but, but it's cool that they made this map while they were squeezing through rock yeah. i don't know how you would make a map I have some I don't know. serious claustrophobia at times. There's no way I could ever go caving. No way. Nah. -uh. <laughs> but hey, That's more amazing. power to him. And like, imagine you're just, you're, you're like, you're, you're 50 mm. meters underground. You're in a cave. It's dark. And you're like, I think I'm lost. Let's look at these maps. How, what, how, what, how are you, how is it going to help you to look at the map when you're in? <laughs> I don't, I don't, what? These maps, these these caves are not even horizontal. You, you go, you go like it's vertical mm -hmm. most of the time. I want to see these maps actually. I mean, this must be interesting to yeah. like to make maps. Like well, that. I do not have any pictures of them to show you, um, unfortunately. But um, that was like that. He must have had a really good sense of direction because that was his. He considered that to sort of be like his job in the group is to make these maps. Yeah, I bet you have to have that for that. Right. And so um, on an interesting side note about caving, uh, his wife, Patricia, is famous for being part of an expedition that mapped the Mammoth Cave and the Flint Ridge Cave system in Kentucky, which was a big deal in learning how it was all connected. She was the person who was able to wiggle through a small enough gap to confirm that the 330 miles of cave were all connected. It made the news. And then someone wrote a book about it called The Longest Cave. Sick. So, William has a lot going on. Patricia has a lot going on. 
And William's still rock climbing, he's caving, he's got this family, and we also know that he started playing Dungeons and Dragons in some capacity. Yeah. Now, this would have been in the er, like the first edition of D&D, because I think that came out in, the, in, in 1974, but um, he must have been an early adopter. And then, unfortunately, the, the D&D detail is important, but unfortunately, in 1975, William and Patricia end up splitting up and getting a divorce. And it seemed like, from what I could tell, the kids went with Patricia. So, the year is 1976, and he suddenly has way more free time than he expected to. And from what I read in this time period, he's feeling kind of rough. He's pretty lonely. He's missing his kids. He can't go caving anymore because his ex-wife is still going on those expeditions, and he described it as awkward. So <laughs> let me just squeeze past you, ex-husband. Uh, what, yeah, what, yeah, my arm goes through here. Yeah, sorry. Touch the boop. Uh, no. <laughs> yes. Didn't want to do that. <laughs> Awkward. It's not like there's 500 other caves in this state. I'm, I'm, I'm just randomly here with you in this cave. It's not like I could have driven to the next crack in the ground. No, I just had to squeeze through here with you. Hey, while we're so, both stuck in this tiny crevice, can maybe this is a good time to talk about us. What the fuck, Pat? Why did you show up here again? I was saying I was going to go to this cave. You can go to the other cave. I don't want to talk about our relationship. There's 330 miles of cave in this in this cave system, and you couldn't go to another part of it. Why this one? <laughs> anyway, point being, he didn't want to go caving anymore. Um, <clears throat> so he starts thinking that he might use some of his time to make a game that would be similar to Dungeons and Dragons. BBN was working on some artificial intelligence stuff at the time. And so that's kind of on his mind. He has access to a PDP 10 at his job. So he starts putting together this game that he's thinking of using a coding language called Fortran. F-O-R. Okay, so you know of it. Still used um, to it, yeah. Yep. If you, yeah, if you don't know what it know what it is, it's an older programming language. Um, it, it's not used as much as it was then, but it is still used in, in a lot of fields. Um, and so he decides to combine some things that he was really into: Dungeons and Dragons and exploring caves. And he thought about making a game that his daughters might want to play, but they were pretty young, and he thought like how would he make it accessible to them and how would he make it accessible to people who didn't normally use computers because in this time i mean it's like the mid 70s right like people don't have access to computers a lot of people don't know what computers are or what they do and so um he starts thinking how do i make this accessible to them so he comes up with a game and he calls it colossal cave adventure and it was based on real caves that he had explored in Kentucky. Ooh, yeah, because he had all those maps, right? Right. He had all those maps. Yep. Nice. And the plot of the game is that you explore through, no surprise, a series of caves. And those caves are rumored to be filled with treasure and gold. And Ooh. yeah, you got to have some stakes, right? Yeah. And so the cave system that he based, um, like, it was it, it was based on maps of places that he had been to. And so it was largely like based on how you would navigate a real cave. But there were some fantastical elements to it. Like I said, like, you know, there's gold and there's treasure and there's magic items. And there were like dwarves that lived in the caves, that kind of thing. I, th I think you also you can't fully simulate the cave exploring. I, I've never done cave exploring, but I imagine 
that the physical experience alone of squealing through a rock is just something you can simulate. And so you have to find another drive to get people going to the game in the computer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've done some, when I was younger, I, I didn't do any exploring, but I went on some tours and some of the tours were like very like squeezed through this rock and you just, it wasn't crazy. You just kind of like wiggled your way through it. And, but there was no way you were going to get stuck or not be able to get out or like, and there was like a million people there if you did get stuck. So it wasn't like, but it's still, I guess it still feels really intense, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the kind of stuff that they were doing, dude, like the Patricia went, if I remember correctly, she had to like crawl through like a 20 foot shaft that like she could like basically like wiggle through at 115 pounds. And I'm like, that is, that sounds horrifying to me. <laughs> like without, without knowing what was ahead of her. Yes. Without knowing what was ahead of her. Yep. Imagine that the, of the, the like you have the possibility in your mind that there is a dead end and you have mm -hmm. to wiggle backwards. But you can't get too excited because if your blood pressure gets too high, you get stuck. <laughs> my skin, my skin what is crawling. Fuck, man? <laughs> <sighs> Makes yeah. my fingernails curl up just thinking of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> we'll get back to the fun stuff. Not dying in caves. <laughs> oh. So he decides that the format is going to be a text-based video game. The game would open with the words, You are standing at the end of a road before a small brick building. Around you is a forest. A small stream flows out of the building and down a gully. It would also say, like, Welcome to Adventure at the top of the screen. But that, like, that was the first prompt, right? So how you interacted with the game is you would type in words two at a time max and the computer would tell you what happened so you might walk into a room and the text would say there are some keys on the ground here and if you type something like get keys the computer would give you back set of keys taken later you might find a steel grate that's locked and you could say unlock grate then you could use the keys in your inventory to unlock it you had like an inventory but there was like a game that tells you north there's a path through the wood west there's yes. that and then you can say go north go west stuff like that exactly yeah. And so um, there's no visual element to this. If you guys have never played a text-based game before, um, there's no visual element. It is, it is just completely text-based. And if the computer didn't understand what you typed, it would just ask you to retype your command. And often the game might give you some kind of snarky or humorous answers uh, as if you were talking to like a dungeon master. And it gave you this illusion that when you typed in a command, it was listening to what you wanted and it was doing what you said. So for what it was, the game was actually kind of a bit of a puzzle and it was pretty difficult in some spots. It required you to make maps of the caves to figure out how to navigate them. And there wasn't really an end goal. Um, so it wasn't like, it didn't have like a lot of what we would expect from a modern game, right? Like it has an end or some goal that you're doing. You could find five different treasures that were hidden in the cave and you could pick them up and that was it and you couldn't really beat it right it just kind of went on forever now crother didn't realize it at the time but in 1976 he had just finished what would later be known as the very first adventure game and also the very first piece of interactive fiction he had That's just cool. 
Yeah, right? He had just advanced the world of video games by a significant margin. Now, does that, does that mean that there was no text adventures before that? Well, so there weren't text adventures in this way. So there had been games that utilized some of this stuff before. Um, there, was a, there was a game about exploring caves, and it was called Hunt the Wumpus, <laughs> but it was not text-based. And there was another game called High Noon that, you, that described everything in the usage of text, but there had never been a game that let you interact with the text in this way. Mm -hmm. Cool. So yeah, really, really interesting, really new. And so he's excited about this. He shows it to his D&D friends. They think it's pretty cool. He shows it to some of his colleagues at work and he gets some feedback on it. And apparently he loved how um, he could fool people into thinking that the game was run by like a complicated AI when it was really just this like table of words, right? And if it found one of the known words that you typed in, then it would give you a response. But people will be like, oh, it's talking to me. It knows the AI, <laughs> right? Because they had no idea how any of it worked. Yeah. How, how easy it is to make people that don't think about programs like that Make, make your program pass the Turing test. Like, oh, this must be alive because it predicted mm -hmm. one very obvious thing I did. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I love when people are like, I was watching this thing on TV and then I went to Google and Google auto-filled in the thing that I was interested in and it, it's, it must know, the AI knows. I'm like, dude, it, you've given it so much information at this point already that of course it knows, right? Like you, all of your searches leading up to this point might make them think that you want to watch the Witcher series, right? Like, of course. I have a lot of friends who sometimes think that like the government is tracking them and shit. And I'm like, okay, no, no, it's, <laughs> like, it's Google that's tracking you and you may, and you, yeah, right. and you, you agreed to be tracked. That's you. you <laughs> exactly. You said, I accept this. Do it, please take all of my data. I wanted this. Or there are people who specifically say, I love when it, when it has my data. because then it knows what I want. Yeah, I don't have to think myself anymore. Google knows me better than I know myself. Why would I? Why would I think about myself? Praise be to Google. Praise be. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so then for Crowther, William Crowther, that's it. He's done. He finished the game. He'd move on to other stuff, and he didn't really seem to think much of it at the time. And in one interview, he described it as quote a silly little thing. Oh, it's just a silly little thing. But I think it's, like many of the people that we encounter that do things for the first time are not aware that this is something new. They are not all like Bear. Bear knew that he was doing mm -hmm. something new. He was like, I'm going to make money off something completely new because nobody's smart enough like me. But everybody else <laughs> will always like, I just do this because I think this is an interesting approach to this. And then they just yeah. do it, and then they that's why they often just leave it behind. Well, for Crowther, the gist I got is that it was kind of like he kind of wanted to see if he could do it, right? Like that, like if he could do it, and whether or not he could trick people into thinking it was an AI, and like did it do accomplish what it, he wanted it to do? Those were more important than like, like I don't think he ever thought he would make money. My, off of it. my wife is gone, my kids are gone, I can't go caving anymore. I really need this. I really need this. I really need to do this, man. I just, yeah. if I don't do this, I snap. I, I promise you I snap. People at the office are like, 
he's really into making that AI. Yeah, don't talk to him, but man. Just leave him. Just keeps calling the AI Patricia. It's really weird, man. And for some reason, after finishing it, he had this weird, like, serenity. He was like, <laughs> nothing matters. I did not. <laughs> I could I can achieve oh. anything. It's fine. <laughs> oh man. All of this is made up. We are just chitting. Oh, what a hundred percent. Everything I have read I everything I have read is that he's like the coolest dude. Yeah. So <laughs> just making terrible okay. jokes about people's death. I don't think people do. It's really cool that he made the first text adventure. <laughs> You're trying so hard to not make us look like jerks. Yeah. We are jerks. <laughs> not terrible jerks. We are jerks, absolutely. <laughs> so he compiles the game. He puts it into a directory at BBN on the early ARPANET system. And then he left to go on vacation to Alaska for a month to visit his sister. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he makes the game. He puts it into um, you know, a directory and he leaves. So people on the internet could find it. So that should have been the end of things. Because typically, system administrators would find things on the drives and be like, what the hell's this video game on here? Let's get rid of it. And then they just like delete it. It'd be purged forever. But not with this one, no. Oh, yeah, not <laughs> this one. Oh, no. <laughs> so memory space memory space was a premium and they often disapproved of it being used to like take up side projects right like taken up for side projects but his colleagues and it's not really clear but his colleagues either because he told them about it they wanted to play it or like they found it but however it, it started they started like taking it and spreading it around and i guess like he had maybe given like like access to his D&D buddies, like maybe some copies of it to his D&D buddies, and they were spreading it around a bit too. And so it started popping up in other universities and laboratories, um, you know, places that would have computers in the 70s, universities and laboratories. Yeah. And suddenly this game starts getting sent around the world. And I don't have numbers here because it was very much an underground kind of thing, like people just sharing it around. Okay. William Crowther is in Alaska. He's visiting his sister. Enter a man named Don Woods. Some quick info on Don Woods. That's such a video game industry name. Uh, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> Some quick info on him. He went to school at Princeton, and he later got a job at the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, or SAIL. By my count, I think he was about 22 at the time. Now, there are a couple of conflicting stories here about how he ran into Colossal Cave Adventure because everybody reports on this differently. But the one that I have seen the most is that a friend told him about it. Um, it might have been in a, like a programming class they were in, but a friend told him about it and then showed him the game on a medical school computer. Woods was intrigued and so he had his friends send him a copy to the sale lab where he had an account. And here's what he had to say about it. Quote, it was definitely different than other computer games at the time. Some computer games included the element of exploration, but they were generally abstract and limited worlds, such as the 20 randomly connected rooms of Hunt the Wumpus. The descriptions in Crowther's game really drew me into it, and the various puzzles hooked me. End quote. 
So he's super into this game, right? He suddenly gets given this really cool game and he starts making copies of it. Then he starts giving it out to people across the country on the ARPANET system. It starts gaining some popularity because you could play it not only on computers that had screens, but also on teleprinters. And what teleprinters did is they would literally just print out, like you'd type in the command you wanted to send to the mainframe, and then the mainframe would send it back to you. But because you didn't have a screen, it would just print out what the mainframe told you, right? So you could literally like play it on like sheets of paper. The game didn't have an official title attached to it, even though Crowther had called it Colossal Cave Adventure. It just booted up and it said, welcome to adventure in all caps. So people just started referring to it as adventure. More on that later. Crowther gets back from Alaska and he is surprised to find out that suddenly people all over the country are playing his game. Woods had figured out some incredibly antiquated way to send an email to Crowther. And he did this. He had no idea of how to get to Crowther. But what he did is he knew it was by Crowther. So he sent an email addressed to Crowther, what Crowther's email would have been, to every domain that existed on ARPANET. And there weren't that many domains. So he'd basically just be like, you know, all right, I'm going to send this one to Crowther at domain. And then I'm going to send this one at Crowther at domain two, whatever it would be, until he finally got a hit. Nice. So they get a hit. He starts chatting and Woods asks if he can have access to the source code to the game and if he'd be allowed to make changes to it. Now, in the early days of programming games, we just kind of talked about this. Most people didn't think that they were ever going to make money off of their creations. And so it was kind of like it was pretty common to say, hey, I made this thing. And if you want to do stuff with it, too, you can have it. Here's the code. You can do whatever you want with it enjoy you know something we encountered already too that that was kind of the video game culture of the time just share it right and then also mod it yeah exactly and so crowther gives him his blessing and um he's just very surprised that this is even happening and so he gives don woods the go-ahead so woods starts adding things to the game and expanding it He adds in more fantasy elements. Now you could cast spells. There were more monsters and a dragon. The dwarves could move around to different rooms on their own. He added in a point system because, you know, every game back then had to have a fucking point system. It had goals, extra treasures to find, all kinds of stuff. And now the end goal of the game was to find all the treasures and get out of the cave without injury. But in his version that he released in April of 1977... The caves no longer mirror real-life caves. And the gist that I got here was that Woods was more interested in making a game rather than a realistic mapping of existing caves. And Crowther claimed that the fantasy changes that Woods made were largely an improvement to the game overall, though some of the puzzles that Woods added were frustrating to his younger daughters. And there are stories where his daughters would be like, and you know, this is very much paraphrasing here. They'd be like, dad, this is too hard. Why did you put this in here? This, this is dumb. And he'd be like, wait, don't blame me. I didn't add that in. That's that other guy. Right. So they would get frustrated, but he largely said that this was a better game than he could have made alone. 
Interestingly, around this time, she ran into William's original game that he had made at the Cave Research Foundation. She went to this big meeting of the Cave Research Foundation, and there's her ex-husband's game on display. And while his game had some embellishments, like you found like an active volcano down there and stuff, those at the meeting agreed that it was relatively accurate to the caves that they had explored. Okay, so Woods finishes his alterations to the game and he sends it out for people to copy. It's like adventure version two. And then he goes away for spring break. And I don't know what it is about people in this story that they leave and then they come back and this thing has happened, but it'll happen again as we go through this story. (laughs) So Woods leaves, he goes for spring break. He comes back. He discovers that people have gone absolutely nuts for his version of the game. Quote, I was told that the lab computer had been overloaded due to people connecting from all over to play adventure, end quote. Slowly, the game became even more popular across the U.S., and according to legend, it slowed down all computer research. Like, if you took all of the aggregate computer research in the country, it set computer research back by two weeks. (laughs) Groups were making tapes of the console to share with each other. It was getting passed around. They started making their own alterations. Some groups tried to make commercial versions of the game. For example, Microsoft made a version in 1979 called Microsoft Adventure. Other groups started making their own text-based games inspired by what they had seen with Adventure, including more notable examples of Zork, you may have heard of Zork before, and Adventureland. And then people who played Adventure or Zork, some of those people got together and created something called Multi-User Dungeon, which is what, um, or we would call them a MUD now, which is what we might think of as the first multiplayer online RPG. Nice. So there was, yeah, right? Have you ever played a MUD? No, I've never played a MUD. I tried one when I was younger and I think it was too above me. I was more into like StarCraft back then when I found out about playing a mud and then i was like what the hell is this (laughs) i i'm 14 i don't i don't have the brain power for this i think i might have played one and didn't know it was one but it was a german thing it was very text-based weird i need to research this i'll get back to you another time about that (laughs) (laughs) on the next episode Um, of codex rex z (laughs) um so There was only ever one official version of Colossal Cave Adventure that was ever published. A guy named Jim, I'm going to try and pronounce his name correctly, Gilogly? Gilogly? Anyway, Jim. He spent a lot of time porting the code of the game to other coding languages. And then he starts working with a guy named Walt Belofsky, who was the creator of a company called the Software Toolworks. If you ever heard of the program Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing, um, they had worked on that. Um, Anyway, so Jim and Walt put together a version of the game, and they call it The Original Adventure. And here's Walt talking about it. Quote, I contacted Will Crowther, with whom I had worked at BBN in the early 70s, and arranged for him and Don Woods to endorse our product as the official version, in return for a small royalty. To further add value to our product, a user who earned all the points and found all the treasures would get a secret code from the program. On receipt of the code... 
we would send the player a lovely certificate of wizardness bearing facsimile signatures of both Crowther and Woods and an embossed seal. It was pretty much the only time we ever got use out of our corporate seal. So think on that, right? It's like the late 70s, early 80s, and you're playing a video game and they say, you did it. You kick this video game's ass. Here's a code. And you would send that code into the company and they would have confirmation that you did it. And then they would send you like a fucking certificate you hung on your wall. Your certificate of wizardness. I would have gone it's kind of crazy. Cool. Yeah. But imagine if, uh, I don't know, if they did that today. I mean, they did it for everybody who did it, right? Mm-hmm. They, if they did that today, that would be pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I'd hang up my certificate of wizardness. Put it right. Put it right next to my PhD. Put it above my PhD. I think being a wizard's cooler I, than I yeah. bet someone. Like, did did that really happen at some point? Or yeah. Just, okay, but be, I bet someone still has that somewhere hanging. Oh yeah, yeah. In their office next to their PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope. Yeah. Um. Oh, I thought I had a picture. I I did not save a picture. That's unfortunate. That's okay. Oh well. Yeah, it was like it was literally just like certificate of wizardness and it had like, you know, like basically you did it. Congrats. Okay. <clears throat> so that was that. Adventure was everywhere. Official version of it made. People loved it. Williams kids loved it. Right? That should be the end of it, right? Bing bang boom. Done. Quick Tyler episode. We had some drama. Somebody got divorced. You got a wizardness in the mail, right? We talked I, about I caves. Was, I was promised more characters. This isn't the end. It doesn't feel like the end. You you have what a ride. built this up too much. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're going to start with a new story now, and then you're going to connect them. I see what's happening here. You don't... No, no. Keep going, Tyler. While I get the whip. <laughs> Do it. Joseph Warren Robinette. There we go. Tell me about Joseph. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, well, first off, Joseph typically prefers to go by his middle name, Warren. <laughs> okay, Warren. <laughs> Why do you want to be called like a place where rabbits live? That's really weird. <laughs> Listen, he didn't pick his name, okay? <laughs> but he preferred to be called like that. I don't know. Warren's better than... No offense to people named Joe, but Joe's like a... Like, I don't know, when you're like putting... He's an average Joe. Right? Because there's like a million people named Joe. Yeah. I don't know. Warren. Warren's more unique. Yeah. Well, regardless, he was born in December of 1951 in Springfield, Missouri. Um, he claimed that he saw his first computer when he was in high school. He would write programs on it, and then he would get it sent to the University of Missouri, and he would get the results of the program a week later. He went away to this summer camp math thing when he was 16 that was sponsored by the National Science Foundation, and they would just like go and do math there. And he says that that kind of set him on this path to what would end up having him work in the gaming industry. He also says, quote, I first played a computer game when I saw one at the airport when my father was taking me there on my way back to college in the very early 70s. It was a stand-up coin-op maze game. That stuck in my memory because it was something new, end quote. He got his bachelor's degree from William Marsh Rice University in Houston, Texas, which is known for being like a big research university. He, 
unsurprisingly for this podcast, majored in computer applications to language and art. After graduation, he started working for an oil company as a, there's this programming language again, a Fortran programmer. From there, he went to the University of California, Berkeley, and did some time in graduate school and got his master's. He wasn't much of a gamer. He makes the decision at 26 years old that he wants to get a job at Atari. He says, quote, I showed up at the front door of Atari and filled out a job application and wrote a little essay about why I'd be the perfect person for them to hire. I'd study computer graphics as a student and I'd been taught to program. I had a master's in computer science with computer graphics as a specialty. They bought it. I mean, what, 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 what did they buy? Did they buy that he was qualified? That is good qualifications for a job like that. It's, most people working in the video game industry are self-taught and are probably, because if you're self-taught, you probably do certain things very ineffectively. It's really good to get someone that learned it professionally. It's not, mm -hmm. not saying that self-taughtness is bad, but he just did a good application and they bought it because it was a good application. I actually agree, right? Like I'm like, There, there wasn't really a video game industry at this point. Like Atari had been around for a few years, right? But like, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I'm like, dude, you're fucking crazy qualified yeah. for this. I mean, you came out of Berkeley? Like, come on. His parents were so disappointed. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> He's going to work for a toy company. A toy <laughs> company. My child. Anyway. Okay, uh, programming in Atari was interesting. He writes of it, quote, Back then, if you were an Atari 2600 programmer, you got to choose what the game was about. Write the program. Do the graphics. Do the sounds. Figure out how the gameplay worked. Test it out on kids and decide when it was finished and was good enough to release. Basically do every single thing, end quote. But he was still excited because he was getting paid to make video games, right? The dream. And so the first game that he came up with and worked on for them was called Slot Racers, which released in 1978. The point of the game is that you use the joystick to move around a car through a maze. You fight against another human player who has a car and you fire missiles at each other. Blasting your opponent's car gives you a point. I lifted this next part directly from the Wikipedia entry on Slot Racers because I thought it was a good take on Slot Racers. <clears throat> quote slot racers was reviewed by video magazine in its arcade alley column where it was described as a fast moving head-to-head -head thriller despite noting that the game's plot is patently absurd and that the game has virtually nothing to do with either slot cars or racing of any kind the reviewers <laughs> called it a triumph and ranked it as the most important of the atari 2600's classic labyrinth games so they're like this doesn't make any fucking sense at all but it's pretty fun <laughs> cool robinette also writes on it It would have never gotten published in any normal situation, but Atari needed product and published everything the programmers produced in 1978. 1978, they still had the worst ahead of them. That was still, oh, yeah. that was still okay times for them. Mm -hmm. But apparently they've been struggling for a long time. <laughs> well, so um, we're actually going to, we'll talk about Robinette and then we're going to do sort of like a retrospect, like a, like a brief couple of paragraphs on what was going on at Atari, like when it's slightly relevant. It'll, it'll, 
creepy a little bit. Um, but yeah, the the big thing is that they like trying to break into the console market. Like they needed money because it was really expensive, and uh, they had they like got bought out, and so there was like this whole thing going on that they like, needed cash flow. And it, anyway, making games is expensive. Okay, one thing about how Atari operated when when Robinette was there is that like if you're this if you're a programmer, you're working on a game, but you can't just make a game and go, okay, it's done, and then go, what's my next game going to be? You have to sort of be thinking ahead on what your next project's going to be while you're finishing your current one. So while he's working on slot racers, one of his housemates at the time is somebody named Julius Smith, who was a grad student at Stanford. Julius takes Warren over to the Stanford AI labs. And while he's there, he gets a chance to play a game called Colossal Cave Adventure. Sick. <laughs> He plays hey, a- can I show you my my? I want, um, I I have this cool game. It's about um, you type in text and then it gives you more text and then we have more text. Dude, I want to play slot races where you see what's going on, man. I'm I'm a seventies basketball jock and I don't play text. I don't read. Yeah, so um, I really liked Colossal Cave Adventure, but um, I just was kind of weirded out about the part where you get stuck next to your ex-wife and you have to try and work on your relationship <laughs> while you're in a 20-foot tube. And, like, you can only use two words at a time. So, like, I couldn't even say I love you. It's, like, too much. <laughs> like, I just don't know how to get her back. I don't know what to do. And the game just keeps telling me that it's over and I really need to work on myself and that it's... It's going to take the kids and the second that I get out of this crack, oh, you're going to see. And I just, I don't know, man. Why do you like, I just wanted to like fucking strangle a dragon with my bare hands or whatever. And like, here I am trying to fucking work on my relationship. You can use two prompts to say happy wife, happy life. (laughs) 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 okay okay you little shit i'm gonna tell everybody about this throwback joke you just made okay okay so (laughs) i got married recently and (laughs) docs told me that I should start saying happy wife, happy life. And just like giving Andrea the things that she wants. Right. And I've been joking with him that that's like total boot, like boomer humor. And he's like, I've been saying it. It works out for me. Okay. So I messaged him the other day because Andrea, my wife has really been into deep rock galactic lately. And when she wants to play with me, she'll be like, Hey, what are you doing? You want to play DRG? And sometimes I'll be busy. Like I'm working on something. And she was like, you should play with me. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> it's like, Fuck off dogs. Oh, fucking hilarious. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me try let me try and get us back on track. And we ser- and we serious the fuck up. This is a serious video game history podcast. <laughs> okay, so all right. <clears throat> Robinette. He's hanging out with his friend Julius Smith. He's playing Colossal Colossal Cave Adventure. He plays it for a few hours. He's really into it. And he starts thinking. 
What if he used this as the inspiration to make his own version of adventure? But that would take a lot, right? Because like he's programming on the Atari, uh, the Atari 2600, and this is a text-based game. Like, How do you take a text-based game and turn it into something that you could use a joystick with? And oh, mind you, that that joystick only has a single button. So he starts programming, and he just starts like testing things out you know sort of throwing things at the wall and and seeing what sticks he decides that he wants to use the sprites in the 2600 that were coded to be more detailed for the items and then use the less detailed sprites uh the slots for them that is on like the player character and so what you get is for the for at the time you know the items like the keys that you could pick up looked like a key but the player character is literally just a square he basically made the game into this maze and uh, he used the walls to guide you and keep you from moving around in ways he didn't want you to. And instead of a cave, he would make it into a representation of a castle or multiple castles as it turned into later. But what was interesting... Do you look at it from the side or do you look at it from the top? It's a top-down thing. Yeah. Is it is it going to be like Rogue? Um, No, you're like Rogue is in ASCII, right? Um, this mm-hmm. is more like here. I'll send you. I'll send you a quick picture of what it looked like. It's it's very rudimentary in what we would expect today, right? But there's like a, a very blocky castle. You can see in the bottom left of the picture, there's a dot, and it's standing next to a key, and that's the player avatar about to get a key. Ah, you're the player avatar. Oh, yeah, yep, yeah. yep, yep. The little the little square. Um, and so basically, um, you would you know you'd walk around. You could pick up items, and you could do stuff. And what was really interesting about this, though, was that in almost all of the games that you played up till this point, um, they took place on a single screen. And so, like, think about, like, Pac-Man or think about Pong or, or even this slot racers yeah. game, right? They're all on one screen. And he is... You don't, you don't, you don't move from one screen to another. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so he has this idea, right? Well, like, well, wait, what if, what if you just walked off the edge of the screen and then you could appear in an adjacent area and people were like, wait, 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 what, what, what? Like, this is, this is crazy. And like, technically other games had done it before, like Moonlander in 1973, you could like move around to different screens, but it was still not. And technically this is what Adventure did. Adventure did that because you were, you only got it in text, but Mm -hmm. you were described one, you were described the screen and then you could move to the next screen by giving the correct prompt. Exactly. Though the screen was kind of in your mind after reading the the prompt that you got. Right. And you might have to draw your own visual representation of where you are and what you're doing. But that's the perfect way to translate that to 2D graphics. Exactly. So it was novel to Atari and, you know, the home home console market. And so he's putting together this game, and then he starts right, uh, running into snags with his boss, George Simcock. That's his name. George Simcock. That's not a funny name. It's a number name. What are you smiling about? Yeah, if you're out there laughing, chat, you, or our listeners, rather. You should be. You're a real Simcock. You're a real Simcock. Yeah. I guess they're <laughs> calling you George. Okay. So Robinette starts claiming that Simcock wasn't very imaginative. It wasn't very imaginative. Apparently, he's this older guy who had worked for the aircraft company Lockheed. And he treated them like he would, um, like programmers who might be working on building airplanes. And so you got to think airplanes are very like 
you do things by the book. You do what you are told when you are told. Because if you don't, the aircraft could have problems and people could die, right? So he's approaching it from this sort of angle. And he's dealing with everything that I have read about Atari at the time. A bunch of totally stoned, crazy programmers who are all just having like this fucking blast. Um, also, they were artists and art doesn't work that way. Exactly. It just doesn't. Yep. So, <clears throat> Robinette's boss, George, finds out what he's working on and actively tells him, he tries to discourage him from doing it. See, Colossal Cave was around 100 kilobytes of data because it was on a computer. And the 2600 could handle four kilobytes at most. So he's like, this is an impossible task. Just drop it. And of course, because it's this podcast, Warren is undeterred. He's like, these are video games, man. This is not how all of this works. And so he did what many people have done. He worked on it in secret for a month and didn't tell anybody. And he comes up with a playable demo. He takes that demo. But, but who, who, who does he show it? If he can't show it to his boss. Well, he doesn't show it to his boss. What he does instead is he starts showing it to other people at Atari, including the marketing department. And the marketing department likes it, so he keeps working on it. Eventually, he has to show his boss what he's working on, and his boss is pissed that Warren didn't listen to him. He's like, basically, like, you totally didn't listen to me. You defied me. What's wrong with you? Right? Those aren't exact words. But because the marketing people were into it, it would be very difficult to fire Robinette at this stage of production. So he keeps on trucking. Yeah. But you see, the marketing department had their own plans, though. Atari was warned, owned by Warner Communications at the time. We'll talk about this in a moment. And they had also gotten the rights to the very first Superman movie that was coming out in 1979, the following year. They wanted him to take the code from this adventure game and turn it into a Superman game so that they could make money from the tie-in. Warren's like, no way. I like my idea. So every couple of weeks, he goes to a meeting. They'd have these big meetings, and they would tell him to make this into a Superman game. And he'd say something like, I'll do it if I have to, but I don't want to. And apparently, after the third or fourth time that this was this was pitched to him another designer just said that he would take the superman code and make a game with it instead and then this further pissed off george simcock because warren had yet again avoided what he had been told to do damn it warren, warren it. i told you to drop it when you didn't i told you to put clark kent's face in it i just wanted it to be a floating superman head and you wouldn't do this for me warren Warren, you are risking the company. You are risking my neck. And I need you to step in line, right? You could do this for me. Do you know what's fucking riding on this, Warren? Do you know what's riding on this? My yearly bonus, okay? And I want a new car. Okay, you little shit. You get in there I and you put super in. Like an intense, like an intense 50 CU that is <laughs> borderline violent. Like you you never know if you get punished on the in, in on the nose or something. It's just it's really, he's really intense. You, you got to stand your ground. Otherwise, you start crying again on the toilet alone. He throws the full force of the top half of his body down under the desk and says, 
Warren, I want Superman on my desk right now. <laughs> I need pictures of Superman. <laughs> I, was hoping, I was hoping you picked up the joke. <laughs> Bring me pictures of Superman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Warren refuses, and then it gets given to this other guy. Okay. But Warren, he showed them this proof of concept, and they're like, this is a cool idea. And he's like, okay, I've shown them that I can do this, but the game is very boring. It had a small number of rooms, a single key, and a dragon that would chase you. Although, admittedly, the dragon looked kind of like a duck. Let me show you what the dragon looked like. It doesn't, I don't know. It's more a duck than a dragon. Yeah. But also not a duck. So it's just something. Did you watch Homestar Runner when you were younger? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So on one of the home screens, uh, Pico, Pico gets a shout out for this one. On one of the home screens, uh, it's like old retro video games. Like, you know how like you could mouse over like the different things and it'd be like games, characters, right? Well, when you mouse over one of them, it shows strong bad and he's running with an enchanted chalice which will matter to the story in a moment. And this critter is chasing after him. And it's like mouth is like going back and forth. And he goes, somebody get this freaking duck away from me. And I never (laughs) understood it until now. I like literally went upstairs and was trying to explain to Andrea. I was like last night, I was like, I need you to understand that this is a reference from 21 years ago (laughs) that I did not understand. And I finally do. So the dragon, or the duck, the duck dragon, it just kind of buzzed around not really doing anything. It just chased you, and it didn't actually hurt you or do anything. But the marketing department keeps pushing him to make something. He was just unsure of how to make it better. He lets it sit for several months. Most things I read said around six months or so. Because he wasn't on a particular schedule, he could just give it some time. When he shelved it, he started working on a cartridge that would teach people how to program in basic. And then he goes back to adventure and he starts slowly adding things to the game. More objects, more monsters. The dragon became three dragons and you could fight them with a sword. Um, You could sometimes get away from the dragon if you were fast enough. And because there was a hardware limitation, um, most of the screen needed to be mirrored, but he just used that as a way to create the game's like maze-like structure. Later, he ran into a bug where you could accidentally drop items into the wall. So he put a magnet item in the game that let you grab things from far away um, as a way to like circumvent that. He also came up with a way that you could respawn if you died, where if you flipped a switch on the console, you would respawn with all of your items but all the dragons would respawn as well. And this is one of the first examples of what we might think of as a continue in a video game. He worked with a man named Steve Harding to flesh out the story for adventure. Steve was the guy who made most of the Atari 2600 manuals at the time. And after he played the game, he gave Warren a lot of feedback. Now the manuals at this time are where people would get most of their info on a game. It often wouldn't be communicated to you um, in those days without the book. And this is jumping ahead, but again, with these with the dragon ducks, I remember reading a story about somebody who um, 
opened up the game and played it and didn't look at the book and they were so confused on why they were just being accosted by giant malevolent ducks anyway the final result of the game is this an evil magician has stolen an enchanted chalice you must recover it the game had a total of 30 rooms of which there were several mazes and hazards and such three dragons would come after you their names yorgle grundle and rindle there was also a bat that would move around and could steal items from you and it would change screens even when you weren't looking at it oh, no. i know its name was nubber rub nubber rub <laughs> nice name yeah right nubber rub <laughs> it never officially had its name put into the manual though the game had three difficulty settings with the lowest being a shorter adventure and the highest having a randomized set of item locations you could customize your playthrough with switches on the console making the dragons attack faster or to run from you if you had the sword item and if it isn't completely clear here um I feel like this is just like basically its own game at this point. Like it's so far removed from Colossal Cave Adventure that like it's hard to even compare them. Yeah. But also one thing, the speedrun community would have loved something like that. Like, well, I can, we, we can make our own speedrun categories by just mm -hmm. flipping switches. This is so cool. Sick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing under the pissed off duck category. <laughs> like when they fuck me up faster <laughs> so. okay now as i said we would talk about what was going on at atari at some point so before we move on to the part where he publishes the game to get context on how this game was published we need to detour and talk about what atari was like at the time atari was in a weird place and also video games were in a weird place so we'll loop back to our friend robinette in a second Atari in those early days is so insane that I feel like it needs its own episode, but I'll do my best. The company had originally been founded by a few people, but the one who stuck around the longest was a man named Nolan Bushnell. To break into the console home market, home console market rather, Atari needed money. And so in 1976, they were purchased by Warner Communications. And after this merger, right? There was this major clash over work culture. Some have speculated that the guys at Atari who sold the company didn't expect Warner to take over in the, in the, in the way that they did, but that's ultimately what happened at the time of our story. Nolan was no longer with the company, Nolan Bushnell and Warner had appointed someone named Ray Kassar. I hope I'm saying his name right. Kassar K A S S A R to take over. Now, this guy, Ray, was just massively in conflict with the rest of the company. I have read so many developer stories about him, even from like not Robinette. He was this high society kind of guy, and the rest of the office was in casual clothes. <laughs> Ray Kossar says that on his first day he came to the job, he showed up in a full business suit with a tie. He met Nolan Bushnell for the first time, and Bushnell was wearing a t-shirt that said, and I quote, I love to fuck. <laughs> That's a pretty big culture clash. Yeah. Okay. So I have read story after story about how so many people at Atari hated Ray Kassar. To give you context, 
He was paid a $3 million salary, had access to a helicopter and a Rolls Royce. And then when you contrast this with what programmers were being paid, they were typically being paid anywhere from twenty dollars to $30,000 with royalties. But Warner was very good at doing what we might call Hollywood accounting, where they would make a project seem like it made no money, even though it was wildly successful, so they didn't have to pay out royalties. So even though these developers were being told, oh, you'll get all these royalties from this game, they never did. Disgusting. Right? And I think that, you know, this is just my opinion. I think that what most of what was said about Kassar and why they didn't like him was was probably true. Um, I think a lot of it might be a little exaggerated. But but that being said, in his light defense, not to defend somebody who was making $3 million and had access to a private helicopter in the 70s, um, I think that he might have been brought in to sort of bring order to the company. And I actually do think that he put up with a lot of garbage. And I think that it did seem like he genuinely cared about some of the programmers. Like I've read things where he said that he thought that they were a very weird, but talented group of people. And so he's like trying to find his way, like best way to fit into this culture of like, I wear shirts that say, I love to fuck to work. So I read a story about how one of the top programmers who was unnamed showed up one day super high and he shows up to Ray Kossar and all he wants to do is just read him poetry. And Ray just sat there for four hours just listening just to show this dude that he cared about him. And he's like, so that's basically what I had to put up with. (laughs) But everything I have read about the inside of Atari at that time was just wild. And I don't know if that like excuses his choices, but I, I thought it was prudent to sort of like say like, hey, there's like multiple sides to the story here. Anyway, Ray makes structural changes to the company. And some of that were big security changes that increased the monitoring of employees and what they did. There's a story where Robinette, while he's working on stuff, locks himself out of his office. And they had they had installed these like fancy security doors that required like a key card thing. Well, he's like, well, shit, I need it into my office. So he goes over to engineering, takes a bunch of their tools, and breaks down this new fancy security door. No alarms go off. And that is when they realize that the security doors only existed to track when the like the producers themselves were coming and going. It was to monitor them, not to keep outside people from getting into Atari. Employee surveillance, yeah. Yep. So you might imagine that a bunch of artists who are like, fuck, man, we like making art and video games might be pretty pissed that this is going on. And so I read a lot of these stories basically saying that they were like, you know, the the new Atari management was very rude and was like, anybody could fucking do this job. So why don't you get in there and do it? Or I'll just replace you. So that's like a level of disrespect that they're working with. So now you have this picture of what Atari was like at the time. Let's go back to our friend Warren Robinette. So with all of his work that he's put into adventure, he realizes he's not going to get much at all out of making this game. A quote from him. I didn't make much money at Atari. I didn't get any royalties. I didn't get any recognition or pats on the back or bonus or anything. They didn't treat us too well. End quote. He noticed that when Can his I just previous- say that Atari made electronic arts possible by treating their people like that? 
They did. Wasn't that the whole gist of Electronic Arts to not do all of that? <laughs> that is exactly true. Yep. And you know what's really fascinating? Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to do an episode on this. Maybe we will. But there were a bunch of people that when... Um, Basically, what I'm about to tell you is is that they made the decision to not put people's names on the boxes of games, right? So even if you fully designed the game yourself, it would say created by Atari. It wouldn't say created by Warren Robinette. And this clash was so big that four developers left. They were like big, big name developers of the company, and they left and started their own company that they called Activision. And so uh, that's where Activision came from people who were disenfranchised with the shit at Atari. So, so yeah, so he noticed slot racers said published by Atari and he's like, well, shit, I made that game. Atari didn't make that game. I made that game. And so he's like, well, they're going to do the same thing with adventure. So he's making $22,000 a year, no royalties. And Atari would make insane amounts of money off of what he had created. Atari cartridges sold for around $25 a cartridge at the time, and it was not unheard of for them to sell massive numbers of these things. So why no name on the box? The higher-ups at Atari, from what I have read, were worried that if other companies saw the names of developers on boxes, that they might come and steal their talent. Further, Warren seemed to think that it was a power play from the higher ups to keep people from getting known and then having bargaining power, right? So people would be like, hey, why is Warren Robinette only getting paid $22,000 when he made this crazy, insane game that took over the world, right? So he could bargain that. He could say, look what I did for you. But if his name wasn't on the box, it made that harder. Okay, we've established all of this. It's time for Warren's power play. He knows he isn't getting credit, but he has an idea. He has finished the game, and he has 15 bytes of space left at the end. He decides he's going to use it for something else. He would hide his name within the game as a way to fuck with Atari and make sure it was known to the world that he, Warren Robinette, had made it. It would be his tiny act of rebellion against shitty corporate practices. He said he was inspired by hearing old rumors that if you played Beatles records backward, that you could hear hidden messages. Paul is dead. Paul is dead. (laughs) That is the exact one he mentions in the interview that I watched. (laughs) um, If one of you know it, there's a conspiracy that Paul McCartney died and got replaced by an impersonator. And that impersonator is Paul McCartney today. That is a conspiracy. Yeah. And you could hear, like, there's one album, and they would say that if you play that backwards, it actually sounds a bit like Paul is dead. But it, mm-hmm. obviously, it's a conspiracy mind doing conspiracy things. <laughs> yeah, really there fun. was a whole, like, there was a whole thing about playing records backwards that, like, lasted for a while. Um, yeah. And it was all about, like, um, you know, finding hidden messages. And like, there was also like, like some religious fanatics at the time thought that you could hear like, you know, messages from the devil and shit. If you listen to records backwards or like, you know, that like people were like demonic worshipers or some shit. And it was like the the whole satanic panic of the eighties, really a lot of it relied on like listening to records backward. But anyway, um, but that's a good idea to put his name in secretly. Secretly. 
So here's a long quote. I was going to try and describe to you how you got to this. I, I found it in his own words, and I thought this was better to have him explain it. So this is a long one, but he's going to explain it. There was a yellow castle, a white castle, and a black castle. There was a yellow key, a black key, and a white key. If you found the black key, you could open up the gate of the black castle and get into it. Inside of the black castle was a maze. That particular maze consisted of two disjointed mazes that were intertwined with one another. And the only way that you could get into the part of the maze that had the thing that lets you get to the secret room is if you used the bridge to cross one of the walls in the maze inside of the Black Castle. Pause. There was an item in the game that was a movable bridge. Okay. Okay. If you did that, use the bridge, cross the wall, you get into a tiny chamber. And if you just went in, you'd run into the key to the secret room. The key didn't look like a key. It was a single pixel. I called it the dot. The kids called it the dot. It was the tiniest possible object. I've corresponded by email with a number of people that played adventure over the years. From one kid, I heard that he found the dot. He knew it did something. He wouldn't let his parents turn off the video game or the TV for three weeks while he tried everything under the sun and finally figured out what the dot was for. Some of the kids, just by trial and error, figured out that if you took the dot into one particular room and had two other objects there, it would let you get through one of the side walls. Then, at that point, I didn't see any reason to hold back. Half the screen filled up with my name in flashing colors created by Warren Robinette. I will send you what that looks like right now. Nice. <laughs> so it, right. This little tiny secret that you, it, to explain it to all of you, it's just the square dot player avatar standing in a room and vertically it says created by Warren Robinette in like chunky pixel, pixel font. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. I saw it as my signature, like what a painter puts at the bottom of a painting, he said in a different interview. He also said, to put it more bluntly, in a different interview, it was kind of a little fuck you to Atari management. They took away my royalty, but I tricked them into publicizing my name. (laughs) Okay. The whole secret took up about 5% of the space on the cartridge. He finishes the game, hands over the source code, as well as the basic programming cartridge that he had made the two games so Atari could be in production. He told nobody of his secret signature and his hidden room. There was nothing about it in the manual or any suggestion of a secret. He was pretty sure that nobody would even find it. Nobody ran into it during the play testing of the game either. I guess around this time, a lot of people that Warren was friends with started leaving the company. He begins to feel very isolated. He starts thinking about quitting. I guess that one of his friends was leaving one day and apparently like the ritual was that when somebody quit, they would all go out to the bar and get absolutely pissed drunk because of course they do. Yeah. And they're all sitting there and Warren is getting drunk. And as he's getting drunk, he's getting mad. And as he's getting mad, he's getting angrier and angrier about what's going on at Atari. So he goes over to a phone and he calls up the corporate office and he says that he wants to speak to the president of the company, Ray Kossar. And he surprisingly gets through to him. He starts drunkenly telling Ray how pissed he is about management. And Ray just straight up invites him to come over to his office to talk right then and there. So Warren Robinette gets in his car 
And suddenly don't, he is. Don't drink and drive, kids. Don't. Yes. Don't drink and drive. Do not drink and drive. <laughs> I had that thought when I read this too. <laughs> he drives over to Atari and walks in to the president of Atari's office, pissed drunk, and just starts bitching. And I guess he said that like he was really surprised, like he did not expect just suddenly to be talking to, to this guy, the president of the company. Like for me, that's like a like a dog caught the car moment, but anyway um i don't know what happened to that meeting i never found an interview about it <clears throat> but i do know that after that shortly thereafter warren turned in all of his stuff and about a month later he decided to quit atari he said that his boss like his direct boss george simcock smiled when he told him that he was leaving Quote, I was tired of working and Atari management didn't value the 2,600 de designers. Boy, were they stupid because the designers all quit and started competing companies. Yeah. Um, they went themselves. I found, yeah, they did. Yeah. I found another interview. Uh, he said something amusing again. <laughs> I guess I was burned out. Or maybe it was that I had $10,000 in my savings account for the first time in my life. I remember I told my friend Julius... I have enough money to get drunk 2,000 times. <laughs> Just imagine the alternate timeline because Atari had some of the most important developers of the time in the US mm -hmm. and they scared them away and they created one some, some of the most important video game companies today. They did. Yep. And they lost all of that. And if if they kind of weren't, were, would have been able to to somehow communicate with their employees and make it make the place more comfortable for them that maybe they could have saved themselves yeah well yeah. i don't know if they still would have made it through the 1983 video game crash but i think that they might have weathered yeah. it better but anyway so he, he but maybe, the, maybe maybe the people in charge didn't want to save it they were making money from it yeah and then they could move on and yeah, I mean, the original creator had left. It was it had been turned over to Warner Communications, and yeah. I'm not surprised they sort of milked it for what it was worth. Yeah. So, in the echo of what has happened to the other two people in this story, Warren decides to go on vacation after the game is released. He spent the early part of 1980 traveling around Europe with a backpack. Cool. When he returns through a series of events he ends up meeting some people who want to make educational video games. They got a grant from the National Science Foundation, and when the money on that ran out, the four of them decided to start up a gaming company called The Learning Company. Some of you who played games in the 80s and 90s might know them. but Okay, so, <clears throat> all that's great, but what of adventure? What of this hidden secret? Supposedly, several people found it independently, so it's hard to pin down the first, but we do know that the first person to tell Atari about it was a 15-year-old boy named Adam Adam Clayton from Salt Lake City. He found the secret and decided to write Atari an excited letter, explaining to them how he found it. I've read some stuff suggesting that this might have been this might have happened while Robinette was in Europe, but I don't know the exact timeline. Um, because he was not getting any of his like he wasn't getting any mail forwarded to him. Um, so he didn't know at this point. Atari management sees this and starts going nuts. They are pissed. They task some designers to look into it and see if they can replicate it. And one of the guys named Brad Stewart finds it 
And after he finds it, he tells them that if they're going to make him fix it and he, if they're going to make him remove it, he's just going to replace it with fixed by Brad Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> he's not taking it out of the game. Dude, like your, your employers, mm-hmm. they want you to fix something that only you can fix because they have no idea how to program this. And you're like... These motherfuckers, I hate them so much, but I need the money. And now they want to make me do this, and I can this and it's like it's like Frodo. No, no, it's 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 like Boromir seeing the ring and he's like, Oh man, if I had this thing, I could I could be so powerful. We could fight Mordor. I need this power. I can ruin them. I am almighty. He's got the he's got the Bilbo face and he's like why shouldn't yeah. I keep it? <laughs> Why shouldn't I keep this? Why shouldn't I use this power? <laughs> so they realize that he's not going to play ball. And then they also realize that if they did want to remove it and make a new ROM mask for the game to produce it again, it would cost the company $10,000, which is like roughly $33,000 today. So a bunch of Warren's friends from Atari hit him up. And they tell him about the letter. They all go out and over pizza and some beers, he tells them his tale and how he slipped in under Atari's radar as this big fuck you. He said that they were all smiles and it was clear that they had started to plan to do similar things in their own games to try and slip things past Atari. Is this the story of the first Easter egg? It is. Yes, I did it. I found it out. (laughs) (laughs) it's not technically the first easter egg i will go through them near at the end but it is what we think of as the first easter egg for various reasons (laughs) so he said there's nothing they could really do about it they couldn't take any royalties from me because i didn't have any could they fire me no i didn't work there anymore (laughs) (laughs) outside of atari the word had spread kids were telling each other about the secret Early gaming magazines were publishing stuff about how to find it. Enter a man named Steve Wright. He was the manager of the Atari home video game department. He gets called in because Atari also did like they did like uh, arcade machines as well. So he's in charge of the home game section of it. He gets called in to talk to the vice president of marketing and everyone in the meeting is just livid. And Steve goes, hey, wait a minute. This is actually great. This is a great idea. Why don't we put little hidden things like this in games and we'll use that to our advantage? We should be telling all of our programmers to put secrets in games. And he literally did that. He went to his programmers and said, you can hide stuff in games. It will be fun. So he goes and he does an interview with the magazine Electronic Games, which, by the way, I think is the first video game magazine ever. Mm -hmm. In that interview... He said that, quote, from now on, we're going to plant little Easter eggs like that in the games, end quote. And thus the term Easter egg was born. So Steve makes a decision. Officially, all Atari games going forward should have Easter eggs in them. Typically, this meant that games uh, that came out of Atari had hidden developer initials somewhere in the game. They started doing it. The trend continued. It became the popular thing to do. You hide these little secrets in games. Plus, from a completely mercenary corporate standpoint, it co-opted Warren's uh, intentions of this act of corporate rebellion 
and instead turned it into a marketing tactic. Fucking corpos. I don't know. <laughs> Goddamn corpos. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so as we start winding down toward the end, we're not there yet. Some of you might be wondering, have I heard of this adventure game before? Where would I have heard of this? Well, one of the people who bought the Atari version of Adventure was a man named Ernest Klein, who wrote the book Ready Player One in 2011. It was made into a movie in 2018. I have not really personally engaged with either but i know people who have and i chatted with them about this this is a good situation for me to get hate mail as well such a stupid book incredibly stupid please please write me mail that i am the worst but do not read this book if you have not read ready player one please don't please don't read ready player one it's completely useless dude but thank you we can i i know people including our friend carrie uh who have read the second one and I read this plot synopsis for the second book as well. And the second book sounds like the first book, but worse. There is like literally like they literally just go on another Easter egg hunt, but it's like sword art online mixed with ready player one with another Easter egg hunt. And also like the, the AI of the guy from the first one comes back and is evil and is like breaking people out of jail and shit. And like, the main like I'm spoiling the second book for you because don't fucking read it. <laughs> um, and apparently the main character Wade uh, goes through like he's like really demeaning to women in multiple points of the book. And then at like one point he's like seeing people's memories because he can like go through people's memories and he's like watching this woman like make art. And he has this moment that I, I have not read the book, but I have read it equated to Wade realizing that women are also people and that they also have feelings <laughs> like wow right like anyway okay but this whole thing was like a fucking sensation and everybody wanted to play it and when they made the movie every single video game company had to make sure that their you know that like fucking tracer from overwatch was in there so that everybody could go oh look i saw captain crunch from that time there was a captain crunch video game and uh, now we're gonna put all six thousand easter eggs into a video and anyway exactly what exactly what easter eggs turned into right <laughs> like corporate rebellion and then Ready Player One. Okay, so in just to give you an idea of why the hell I brought this up, um, near the end of that story, um, the whole point is that they're like searching for Easter eggs in this like virtual VR world. It's like a full body VR experience. The main character, with the help of his friends, he's trying to find these Easter eggs that have been hidden, and they're all kind of like based on old video games and things like that. And the last one is Robinette's version of Adventure. And the main character goes into like this cave and he plays on like an old TV and he goes and he gets the, the dot, right? And then he goes in and he finds it and he goes, ah, it's the first Easter egg. And they keep calling it the first Easter egg. Now, some of you who are very astute and may have done your research would know that, yes, this is where we got the term Easter egg, but it is not the first Easter egg. While it is technically true that the term did not exist, we do know that it is not the first instance of a programmer hiding a secret in a video game. Here is a list. I will try to be quick. I know that uh, there's a lot here. The very first Easter egg in a video game is believed to have been created by a man named Jack Burness in the 1973 game Moonlander. 
the point of the game is to, well, um, land something on the moon. <laughs> if you explore the map far enough, you can find a building with a set of big arches next to it in the form of a letter M. If you land next to it, your character will emerge from the pod, walk in, and say, two cheeseburgers and a Big Mac to go. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. The very first Easter egg in a video game is a hidden McDonald's. The next that we know of is in 1977, the Atari arcade cabinet Starship One. This went, um, nobody knew about this for like 30 years. Um, somebody was doing some work on talking to um, Ron, uh, Ron Milner, and he said, do you know about the secret in that game? And they're like, I'm sorry, what? And he explained to them that years previous, he had hidden um, that if you held down some buttons while you put a coin in and push things in the correct order, it will give you 10 free plays and it will say, hi, Ron, at the top of the screen because he had built it in. Oh, no, it's a debugging mode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1977, Spitfire for the Fairchild F had a way to display programmer Michael Glass's name if you put a series of numbers in very slowly on the main screen. Though interestingly, if you want to find this Easter egg, you can only do it with the original code on an emulator because when it came out for the Fairchild F, someone had removed it. And it is thought that perhaps the higher ups knew of this edition and removed it before release because around this time there was talk. This is, you know, this predates Robinette by three years, right? There was talk about like, don't put hidden shit like this in games. We know about it. And there were rumors going around. They didn't want that in their games. Uh, Also predating Robinette. The last one I've got here, video Whizball on the Fairchild F had a secret where if you ended the game with a certain score, and then selected a specific map, it would display the name of programmer Brad Reedself. He was warned by his superiors against doing this, likely because they knew of this new trend and they didn't want him to do it as well, but of course he did it anyway. Nice. So all of this predates Warren uh, Robinette's active corporate defiance, but without his, the term would not be coined in the way that we know it now. It also kind of overlaps the first um, cheats. Right, mm-hmm. because that that one where you get free plays is kind of a cheat, right? So yeah, cheat code you could call it. And I've I always think- wanted to do an episode on the history of cheat codes, and I started working on one, but I never went back to it. So it might be it's fun. An interesting topic. I think we should do that. Yeah, yeah, we should look into that. Yeah, because like you said, they were mostly just debugging modes at first. All all your bases belong to us. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> so let's start our wrap-up here. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Robinette's version of Adventure, um, would he thought it would do very well for Atari, and it did. It sold over a million copies. Atari made about $10 million from the game. Robinette saw $0 in royalties. He has never gotten money from it other than what they paid him. Because it was the first action-adventure game, it spawned an entire genre of video gaming that we still enjoy today. Some consider The Legend of Zelda to be directly inspired by Robinette's work on adventure. Atari briefly... Especially tra- with the screen, with the screen, cha- screen changing and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Atari wanted to make sequels to adventure... Um, what they did instead is they made a series of games called Sword Quest. They made three of them. There were supposed to be four, but the fourth one never got made because of the video game crash um, that were moderately successful. 
If you want to play the various versions of Adventure, you can find both Colossal Cave Adventure and Robinette's version of Adventure, both online for free. I have already put links in the sources, so if you want to play either of them, you can go there and find them, or you can just go online. Ooh, that's yeah, awesome. I dug them up. I played the original. I, I played both of them. I suck at both of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, Robinette's website hosts his version. Um, you can find that pretty easily. Um, I also know that if you wanted, if you for some reason want to hand Atari money, I know that they have included it in various collections over the years. Um, from a game preservation standpoint, the original code for Colossal Cave Adventure was only ever given to Woods. It was actually thought lost to time for decades. Then someone found Woods's student account uh, in 2005 at sale. They found his account and preserved it. And in that account was the original code for Colossal Cave Adventure and they preserved it. Ooh, like it's like digital archaeology. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the version that Woods made was actually updated um, for newer systems and you know little tweaks and stuff up until 1995, still using the Fortran coding language. As I always do, let me tell you about what happened to our various protagonists throughout this tale. Yes. William Crowther left BBN not long after he published Adventure, if we think of it as publishing, and he went to work for the research division of Xerox. He met a woman named Nancy, and they married in 1980. They are still married today. In 1983, he left Xerox and he went back to BBN for a time until it was purchased by Cisco Systems. He eventually retired in 1999. On Adventure, he once said, quote, you know, I've done all sorts of wonderful things in my career. It's funny that the one thing I'm remembered for is adventure. William's ex-wife, Patricia Crowther, remarried in 1977 to John Wilcox, who was the person who had led the cave expeditions she had been famous for. They were together until his death in 2010. She wrote a book called The Grand Kentucky Junction about her expeditions. Don Woods has done a ton of work in the programming industry. It is almost too much for me to recount. Notable things that he has done outside of Adventure that I found on his webpage. I'll just let him say it in his own words. My other claims to fame include being the co-author of the Hacker's Dictionary, co-designer of the InterCal programming language, and author of a textbook titled Notes on Introductory Combinatronics. Combinatronics? I have no idea how to say this word. <laughs> Combinatronics? Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. um the latest update that i could find on him was that he works at a company called uh okta or okta okta which seems to be some kind of internet authentication service and um they call it a cloud identity company uh his homepage actually talks um a lot about all the different games that he plays uh william crowther didn't really play games like ever but don was is really into games and he apparently he and his wife still play all kinds of games and mmos and board games and stuff so um you know even as they're getting up there in years it seems like they're still a part of everything that's cool uh william crowther and don woods the two of them actually met up years later and became sort of friends they used to hang out together and they would play bridge together Ooh. i know right uh, Robinette left the learning company, um, Warren Robinette. He left the learning company after making some games. One of them was a game called Rocky's Boots, which, um, taught people how to do programming. It was like 
sort of like programming for kids. Uh, he also made a game called Robot Odyssey for the Apple II. To summarize some events in his career, he worked at NASA for a while on early virtual reality projects. He ran a VR project at the University of North Carolina. At one point, he worked on something that would let you manipulate things under a microscope using VR, and that was in the early 90s, so I thought that was pretty cool. He was on a VR committee for the National Research Council, and then he worked for Hewlett-Packard for a while. In 2016, he announced that he would be putting out a, well, I think he announced it before 2016. I think it was supposed to come out in 2016. I may have my dates wrong here, but he announced that he was working on a book called The Annotated Adventure. But then I guess he posted on Reddit and said that it was taking him a lot longer than he expected and that he expected it to be split into two books. And supposedly he says that both manuscripts are done. Maybe we'll see them in the future. But in the meantime, he sometimes speaks uh, about his work on adventure and his time in the industry. Uh, he goes to conferences. He gets met by like swarms of fans. So I think I'll leave the last word about adventure to Robinette uh, and Easter eggs specifically. And, and I think something that sums up his whole time in here. And he says, the word Easter egg doesn't apply well or doesn't apply that well to what I did from my point of view. It was a signature, an act of rebellion and defiance. So that's it. That's the story, man. I think uh, I'll give you my takeaway. I think what's really interesting to me is how many times this all could have been shut down right? Like it could have been deleted or somebody might've not found it, or it could have been forgotten like all these games. But like we ended up with the exact series of events where William Crowther playing D and D and going through a divorce somehow leads to the first Easter egg multiple people later. And like what we would expect from like adventure games. Right. I think that's, that's just really cool to me. Yeah, it's a story you can think you can make up. It's just, Reality has to make them. You can't. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts here, man? I can't imagine that. <laughs> really cool. Yeah, thanks for telling me that story. It's really cool. Uh, I like how it slowly got went from people doing real life outside adventure things. It slowly like went into free thinking early video game culture into mm -hmm. video game corporate uh, culture. That was a nice, yeah, um, a nice curve. I like that. Good story. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll tell you, I, um, you know, we've been putting goofy little um, Easter eggs at the end of episodes, uh, and I really liked the last one that you did. Um, and uh, I just had a thought, and I was like, where the hell did Easter eggs come from anyway? And so I suddenly went down this rabbit hole where I was like, oh, okay, it's the 1980 game adventure. And then I'm like writing this stuff up and I'm like, well, wait, he was inspired by this other game, Colossal Cave Adventure. What is that? And then I'm reading about all these like really cool people who used to be in the industry and all their stories. And like, I felt like this is something I had to tell. I was really excited for this one. Tyler, Tyler's lying on the ground, <laughs> three empty bottles of wine around him. He's listened to the episode for the seventh time now because ever since he finished his PhD, he doesn't know what to do with himself. And all of a sudden, he hears the Easter egg at the end. After he heard it six times, he's like, 
what the fuck is an Easter egg? Yeah, it was the first egg that um, Jesus birthed. And inside of it, you opened the egg and it said, created by Warren Robinette. That's that's it. Yep. Facts. Yeah. Facts. Yep. That's just a fact. That's just the app. Any passing thoughts before we finish up, my man? Yeah. No. Uh, just please, all of you, take care of yourself and yeah. do what you do. <laughs> like, be nice. Be nice. And shit like that. And shit like that. <laughs> Perfect. I'll catch you all later. See you, friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bye. Culture podcast. Culture podcast. Let me eat bowls of shit. Culture. That's just a fact.